Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in the last chapter and the last uh, verses of the chapter. So we are in chapter 16, reading verses 17 through 27. And once again, I invite you to turn there in your scriptures and follow along as I read. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I'm full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cortus send you their greetings. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. We come today to the closing words of the Apostle Paul in what is perhaps the most significant letter that we find in the New Testament canon as we have remarked before, if a person has a solid grasp on the doctrine that is contained within this letter, then you will not go wrong as you read the others. This is a theological tour de force that equips you so completely in regard to the gospel. If you were with us last time, we noted that Paul closes his letter with a lengthy list of names, people to whom he sends greetings, some individuals he knows personally, others he knows by way of reputation, some who have been quiet servants that have made a significant contribution, but all who have played a role in advancing the gospel, not only in Rome, but in other parts of the kingdom. And what astonished us was that Paul had never visited Rome, and yet he knew of these people. To the best of our knowledge, none of the twelve apostles had been a part 
of this church's founding in the sense that they were on site proclaiming the gospel, training teachers and leaders, providing direction during its earliest days. And we speculated that there were individuals present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost who experienced that tremendous outpouring of God's Spirit, were regenerated to new life, who then returned to their home in Rome and began to share their experiences as well as the gospel with others. And very organically, the fellowship of believers sprouted from that small cadre only to be reinforced later perhaps by more mature believers from Jerusalem who were then scattered abroad due to the persecution that followed the stoning of Stephen. But whatever the circumstance, the nearly 30 individuals mentioned in the first 16 verses of this chapter indicates that Paul took a keen interest in this body of believers and kept tabs with the progress of this church. But not only does that long list tell us something about the Apostle Paul, it also tells us something about the transforming power and the mystery of the gospel. It is that which helps to explain why Paul would have dedicated his life to its proclamation and why many of these people he names were willing to leave the comfort of home only to suffer all kinds of indignity and persecution for the sake of Christ. It explains why they were willing to travel great distances to further its advance and their willingness to sit in prison cells because of it. It explains their willingness to give up their wealth and their social positions, even their families in some cases, for the gospel, because it wasn't so much that they had hold of a message as it was that a message had a hold of them. And that message was Jesus Christ. Now there may be some here today who do not understand this and, and are wondering why. But you see, once you have experienced the justification that comes by faith in Jesus Christ, once you have experienced the cleansing that comes when God takes away your sin and gives to you, imputes to you, the righteousness of the very Son of God, once you know the truth of Paul's statement in Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Suddenly there is nothing in this world as important as that single thing. And like the man in the parable of the pearl of great price, you will give up everything else, everything you have, for the one thing that money can never buy. What bound Paul to the people in this long list of names was this common experience. These were individuals in whom Paul was aware that the Holy Spirit had been at work, transforming them from one degree of glory to another. These were individuals in whom Paul was aware that the Holy Spirit had been hard at work, sanctifying them more and more into the very image of this, their Savior. They were bound together by God's love 
clinging to Jesus Christ who had died for their sins, had risen from the dead for their justification, was now seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for them constantly. Together, they, with all the saints, were on a mission to proclaim this gospel of salvation to the world. For there was and there is no more important message than this one. However, not everyone believes the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. And this is why Paul says what he does in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Now, over the past 2,000 years, this has been the constant word of caution to the church. From the very beginning, there were those who sought to undermine the authority of the apostles and the doctrine that they were presenting to the world. You see, it is inherent in the heart of man to reject the grace of God in favor of a religion where we are the saviors and God is simply a bystander. Our sin deceives us into thinking that we have the capacity to satisfy the demands of a holy, holy, holy God. And those who cause divisions and create obstacles are as deceitful as the serpent in the garden. For they take the Word of God, they tweak it ever so subtly, so as to confuse any who will listen and eventually lead them astray. They do not offer a a wholesale rejection of the doctrinal underpinnings of the gospel. They simply remove what appears to be one small, insignificant piece, when in reality it's critical to the entire structure. This is why Paul was so quick to condemn the Judaizers who were insisting on the necessity of that little surgical operation known as circumcision. This is why Paul was so quick to confront Peter when his dining habits were altered depending on who was in the dining room. This is why the early church confronted the Gnostics and the Docetists and all the others and why the creedal statements of Nicaea and Chalcedon and others were developed because there were those who rejected some little portion of the apostolic teaching and they thought it could be improved. But in every case, the little tweak that the deniers made robbed the gospel of its wonder-working power. And that heresy needed to be named and cast aside as the heresy that it was. Now in our own day, the quote-unquote Christian airwaves are filled with charlatans who are causing divisions and creating obstacles, leading people astray, filling their minds with heretical views on the Scriptures that Jesus spoke about when He said, it would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And this is why it is imperative that sound doctrine be an integral part of what teaching elders and other spiritual leaders impart to the people of God. 
And by sound doctrine, I mean that teaching which is firmly grounded upon the teaching of the apostles. Paul understood that there was nothing more serious in the life of the church than sound doctrine, for he was surrounded by spiritual ideas and vain philosophies which were tempting to embrace, but which promised nothing more than eternal separation from God. In fact, the early church was more concerned about sound doctrine than they were about the threat of martyrdom. For martyrdom did not have the power to kill you the way that false doctrine had the power to kill you. While being thrown to the lions or stoning or crucifixion would assuredly be a most violent means of death, such a demise would result in your being escorted into the very presence of your Lord and Savior. But false doctrine contained the means of death that would forever separate you from the Lord of life. And this is what lies behind Paul's admonition to be on the alert for those who cause divisions and create obstacles within the body of Christ as it pertains to doctrine. When you find those who raise doubts about the authority of Scripture, it isn't because they're trying to strengthen your faith. It's because they are attempting to introduce something that is contrary to the Word of God. And when you find those who raise doubts about the person of Christ, Him being fully God and fully man, it isn't because they're trying to strengthen your salvation. It's because they are attempting to introduce some other means of salvation that relies upon your own efforts. And whenever you find those who are looking to create some division where the basics of the gospel are concerned, it's not because they care about you. They are looking to separate you from the rest of the flock because they have another agenda that will satisfy their own appetites. And they do this through deception of those who are theologically weak. Paul says, By smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. So it is that we implore people to become educated in the things of Christ. Become deeply familiar with the Scriptures. Read solid theological books that train your mind to understand rightly. Engage in discussion groups with other sound believers where the conversation centers on the Bible and its application to daily life. Become a part of an accountability group where others who genuinely care about your spiritual development challenge you to grow in Christ and to submit to the transforming power of God's Holy Spirit. These and other spiritual disciplines will strengthen you so that when you find yourself confronted by someone who's out to deceive you, you will know rightly the apostolic teaching that has been handed down from one generation to the next. And you will not be routed in your debate, but you will be able to make a defense of the gospel that will leave you feeling even more assured of the truth that is found in Christ alone. Paul says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And the word that Paul uses here for innocent 
is akeraios. It is the negative of the Greek word for mix or mixture. In other words, Paul is saying that he doesn't want these believers to have any doctrine that has been mixed with that which is evil or that which is contrary to the truth of God. And Paul uses this same word in his Philippian letter when he encourages them to continue to press on with their Christian development, doing so without grumbling or disputing. And so he says to them that you may be blameless and innocent, same word, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Now one does not have to look very long or very hard to find that which is evil within the American mainline denominations. Never in the history of the church have we seen such pernicious doctrinal heresies unleashed upon those who believe they are the disciples of Christ. But this is what happens when the ones causing division have made their way into the halls of seminaries where they teach authoritatively and the theologically naive sit under their tutelage. And those naive students then graduate, some with honors, some with advanced degrees, and they occupy pulpits and they write books. And they speak up at denominational assemblies where denominational policies are adopted and the evil becomes more deeply entrenched and power is then given to governing authorities who scatter the flock like the hired hand who cares nothing for the sheep of Christ. Beloved, what God has done for us here in saving us from that is no small thing. There are those who wonder as to why God tolerates such decline. The same wonderment has been voiced in every generation. Why doesn't God intervene? Why does God allow such evil and trouble to continue and to plague the church? And the answer the Bible gives is that God is long-suffering towards us. Incredibly patient with men and women, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the problem is that instead of making good use of God's patient indulgence, sinful humanity only proves that we are incapable of saving ourselves. It only proves that God's assessment of us is correct. That all we like sheep have gone astray. That there is none that is righteous. No, not one. That there is no one who seeks after God. And so God is long-suffering towards us, providing all the time that is necessary for those whom God has elected to salvation to be reached by the Gospel. You see, some of those whom God chose before the foundation of the world have probably not yet been born, but the end will not come until the very last one of the sheep that belong to the flock of Christ responds in faith to the grace that God extends to them in the Gospel. And then, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. 
and the dead in Christ will be raised to life. Paul indicates here that God's patience does have an expiration date. He says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now I wonder if you noticed that phrase, under your feet, when I read that Scripture earlier. We are accustomed to thinking of all things being put under the feet of Christ, but Paul points here to the further implication of Christ's victory being a shared victory where our great adversary will be so thoroughly vanquished that he will no longer have any evil influence over us. Paul told us in chapter 8 that we are children of God, which makes us heirs, co-heirs with Christ. And he posed there the rhetorical question, who can bring any charge against God's elect? And then he answered it by saying that God's the one who justifies. In other words, since God has justified us, there is no one capable of bringing a charge against the redeemed. And he then asks another question, who is to condemn? To which he provides the answer, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In other words, the means by which we were justified was through the atoning work of Christ, who by His perfect life and shed blood and resurrection from the dead established His right to occupy the seat at the right hand of God, where even now He is whispering into the Father's ear on our behalf. The glory of Christ's victory over sin and death and the devil is a glory that He shares with those who are His brothers and sisters. All that He has done, He has done out of love for us. And all that He has, He shares with those whom He loves. And this is why Paul also says in chapter 8 that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, and that there is nothing in all of creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are those who seek to disarm God to such an extent that they do not want to envision the wrath that yet awaits all those who oppose God. Their emphasis on this verse we're looking at is simply upon that first portion, the God of peace. And they will stop there. They fail to take note of the crushing violence that God is waiting to engage in. They would have you believe that God will one day appear and His love will so overpower those who oppose Him that they will realize their error and all will be well with the world. And yet the apostles taught no such thing. And the reason they taught no such thing is because the Lord Jesus taught no such thing. What Jesus teaches is that time is short. He teaches that today is the day of salvation. He teaches that those who follow after Him must be taking up their cross, preparing for tribulation, and must be awake and alert and looking forward to when the bridegroom will return. 
He teaches that there will come a moment when the bridegroom will return and those who are prepared will go into the wedding feast. But those who are foolish and unprepared will be found standing outside of the festivities, knocking at the door, begging to be let in, and he will answer them, I do not know who you are. There awaits all those who oppose God a judgment that is so violent, so decisive and terrible, that when the Lord returns as King, there will be those who cry out to the mountains, fall down upon us. And why will they do that? They will do that because they cannot bear the thought of what lies ahead. They will seek obliteration rather than stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So can you understand how insidious it is when there are those who fail to teach the whole counsel of God? If there is someone who occupies a pulpit proclaiming that there is no judgment awaiting those who fail to repent, who proclaims that God will save every single person then what would ever cause a person to consider the impact of their sin upon their eternal destiny? What would ever cause a person to consider whether or not their thoughts about God are on target or not if it doesn't really matter all that much? And this is why Paul warns us to avoid contact with those who fail to rightly handle the Word of God. And why he is so concerned about the spiritual understanding of those under his care. Their eternal lives depend upon it. But Paul is confident in the one who is risen and who is able to strengthen the believers in Rome. He closes with a doxology that offers praise to God and to God alone. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of His great love for us revealed this gospel, this good news, that for so long was hinted at, offered in glimpses and sneak peeks, but now with the advent of the Christ has been made fully known to the world. And this was God's plan all along, and it is God's charge that the world, the nations, turn to Christ in faith. And when we go to the end of the story and we look in the book of Revelation in chapter 7, we gain a glimpse into the results of all of this, and we discover that God's plan will by the end of this age, result in that very thing. People from every tribe and nation and tongue will respond to the gospel. God's will will be done. God will not be denied. People will turn in obedience and they will live by faith and God will make them righteous through the righteousness of Christ His Son. The question is, will you be among that number? Will you surrender yourself to the sound apostolic teaching of the church and receive the salvation that God offers to you by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone?
And will you respond to the movement of God's Spirit through faithful obedience to Him? Beloved, the Apostle Paul has written a letter not just to the church in Rome, but to the church of all the ages all around the globe. And it is a gospel of grace and it is offered to you this day. And so I invite you, if you have not come, to come even now. Let me invite you to bow your head with me for a moment this morning.